Welcome to Conversations from the Heart podcast by me, Tambu Thomas. I am an emotional wellbeing coach and founder of the Live360 brand. This is a podcast that speaks to the heart of what it is to be a human being. It's for humans who tend to live in the very tops of their heads, restricting themselves with logic and squashing who they are with who they think they're supposed to be. It's for people who are becoming more and more curious about why they feel so disconnected and frankly frightened of their bodies. Conversations from the Heart is about what's emerging from our innate embodied wisdom. The aim is to be a place of gentle connection where humans can see their humanity in the humanity of what's shared here. In a world full of strategies and systems to impress or garner a particular response, I would like this to be an oasis where we can see, hear and hold each other, human to human, heart to heart. Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations from the Heart with me, your host, Tamu Thomas, founder of the Live360 brand. Today, I am here with a solo podcast episode. It's a continuation from a conversation I began on Instagram in a series of reels and very quickly realized that I'd have to make so many 90 second reels to give this subject any credit. I thought I'd just make a podcast episode instead. So here I am. So um, the reel, the first of the reels started by saying self-sabotage self-sabotage and limiting beliefs are maladaptive coping strategies and protection mechanisms. So we usually make these adaptations in our childhood as a response to our needs not being met. As children, we were dependent on our caregivers to meet our needs. And if our needs were not met, we adapted so that we could still get the care that was available to us as we couldn't survive without it. So we essentially made ourselves smaller so that we could fit the small bandwidth our caregivers had available for us. And I'm not saying they're bad people. It's the conditioning. That's how they were functioning. And that's what we got. And as children, we were so dependent on adults for our safety and welfare to accept that they were unable to meet our safety and welfare needs would have been totally discombobulating. It would have meant that at a really young age, we would know that the adults whose job it is to keep us safe and nourished didn't have the capacity to do so and our little brains would not have coped so we adapt and internalize and internalize the inadequacy of our caregivers and make it an us issue we make ourselves responsible for the lack of care the lack of nurture for our parents inability to meet our needs and Inside us, it builds a narrative that we're too much, we're too needy, etc. So as children, we quickly learn to adapt and that keeps us safe-ish. And it begins at such an early age that it's like hypnosis. We are so impressionable, we absorb that data as fact. Consequently, these behavioural adaptations that we use to cope and protect our hearts to protect ourselves, become merged with our reality. So we start to believe that that is how we are, that is how we function. 
um, I hear people say things like, oh, I just like to see the good in people. I like to be useful. Um, I like to be able to help people if I can. I like to go out of my way to help people. And these are all maladaptations because there comes a point in life where seeing the good in people, going out of our way for people and all of those sorts of things mean that we are constantly abandoning ourselves and what we need in favour of providing for other people because we have learnt to derive our worth and to make ourselves convenient by being in service of others. So forget our needs, we'll get a level of fulfilment by meeting the needs of other people by having them tell us we're valuable, we're so good, we're so kind, or what would I do without you? You're so reliable, you're always there. And those things um, give us a element of not even fulfillment. It's like having Haribo when you actually need a full meal, but we get addicted to those short bursts of praise, not realizing there's a whole ass meal inside of us, but we don't get the opportunity to develop that. So as far as we're concerned, we have identified with being basically a caregiver. We care give because our needs can't be met. So we believe that's who we are and our beliefs about who we are become shaped by the capacity of the adults around us. And that often results in us squashing who we are to be convenient and fit in. It means that we learn to make ourselves small and palatable, which means we don't get to experience ourselves as whole. In fact, our whole vibrant, needy, messy selves, lovable selves, can create situations that feel unsafe. So experiencing ourselves as whole and expressing ourselves as whole can create experiences where we feel unsafe. And we absorb all of that as a fact and it means we don't get the opportunity to discover who we are outside of being convenient. This creates experiences that mean you stopped showing who you are because you weren't seen for who you are or who you were. And when you did show who you were and it didn't fit into the narrow capacity of your caregivers, you were taught that it was dangerous. And this unconscious les lesson taught us or teaches that it's not safe for you to be seen as you are. It's not safe for you to be whole. It's not safe for you to be authentic. It's not safe for you to be complicated. It's not safe for you to be needy. It's not safe for you to be anything other than convenient. And this causes huge problems when you set up a business where you need to be seen and your connection needs to be authentic. People buy from people and we can tell when something's disingenuous. You can always tell when someone's off. And in this situation where you're not being your full self and therefore people are picking up that you're off, because you're used to making yourself wrong and the other people right and fitting in with those other people, that offness that comes through from a learnt state of being disingenuous, excuse that grammar, it was terrible, but that offness that comes when you're being disingenuous, when that is picked up by other people, it's reflected back to us, mirror neurons and all that. Do your Googles if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but our mirror neurons reflect offness. People pick that up and reflect that back to us. And then that gives us even more data, even more evidence that we're wrong. 
It gives us even more evidence that we're not good enough. It gives even more evidence that we're not accepted and we're not acceptable by other people. And that is because you've internalized the message that it's unsafe, unsafe for you to be you. So that internalized message then becomes like a unconscious radar, constantly trying to gather evidence that it's unsafe for you to be you so you don't even try. And that's what you get fed back in these instances when the people you would like to be your customers, your clients, whatever you refer to the wonderful people you get to work with, you will internalize that as you being wrong and that will prove you right and feed a narrative that it's unsafe for you to be seen, that it's unsafe for you to be you. And as we're built for survival, we will always, well, nearly always default to protecting ourselves from perceived harm. And that scanning the world for perceived harm as a way of protecting ourselves means that we can often find more and more things that we perceive as harmful because it's like we're constantly searching for the possibility of rejection. And we think what we're doing is priming ourselves and preparing ourselves for rejection. But what we're also doing is magnetizing ourselves to rejection. And I don't mean that in a gaslighty law of attraction way, but it's just like that thing. If you start to notice red cars, you see red cars all over the place. When we have something that we have registered and our mind is attracted to, especially something that allows our negativity bias to run riot, we are going to be seeing that all over the place. So in terms of business, the behavior required to grow is the very behavior you have internalized and your unconscious believes to be harmful to you. And I want you to know that when I talk about the risk of harm, harmful or danger in childhood or the things we perceive to be that way, I'm not necessarily talking about what we would consider to be abuse, although that is included. I'm talking about an issue that is much wider than abuse that would cause professional services, for example, to be involved. Things like being judged harshly by our caregivers causes harm, being criticised regularly causes harm, being told things like nobody likes a bossy boots or um, stop being a show off. These things cause harm. There is no criteria to be met for something that causes you harm. We all have different thresholds. And if your threshold was crossed and you felt harm, you were harmed. There are so many people I know who have issues with perfection, for example. They came from homes where they were harshly criticized, where they were held to really high standards that were almost impossible to meet. I know people who were um, criticized quite often. Oh my gosh, even me, I have one of my aunts, I, I adore her. She's one of my favorites, but I've pretty much been the same size since I was about 18, 19. And up until I was about 27 and I asked my aunt to stop, every time I would see her, she would say I could do with losing a little bit of weight. And that was me as somebody who is slim. Imagine the impact that constant criticism, judgment has on somebody who is plus-sized, for example. So it's not just about the abuse, which is, and I'm repeating myself here, but I just want to be clear. It's not just about what we would consider to be physical abuse, emotional abuse, and the other types of abuse that, you know, 
uh, people experience, whatever crossed our threshold and we held it inside us as harmful and we didn't have the opportunity to process and release that um, energy, that stored up energy, that the harm created, if we didn't have people to support us to reconcile that, we would store that as harm. And that would make speaking out of turn, showing off, quote unquote, being a leader, you know, and showing off, let's face it, quite often it was just a case of being proud of who you are. And a lot of us were raised by parents who maybe in their time, praise was withheld because they didn't want anybody to have or they didn't want their children to have ideas above their station and withholding praise was a means of protecting them let's face it i'm generation x i'm 45 years old my mum is 70 my granddad would have been in his late mid or late 90s by now so the parenting my mum grew up with was definitely an overhang of Victorian parenting and Victoria, Victorian parenting didn't want people, unless you were in the upper echelons of society, Victorian parenting didn't want people, didn't want the masses to be proud, wanted you to be humble and all those sorts of things. And let's be real, a lot of us black or brown people were brought up by parents who experienced colonialism and part and parcel of colonialism was disseminating British culture around the world. So a lot of our parents, um, if you're black or brown or a child from, I don't know, somewhere like Greece or something, I'm sure, don't quote me, but I think that there was a time when Greece was colonized by the Brits. Anyway, the point I am making is, if you were brought up by people who were influenced by Victorian parenting, you will definitely have had instances where you were not allowed to be as bright and as vibrant as you are. And sometimes we only realise the harm that was caused when we're adults and reflecting. Because for many of us, that kind of Victorian shame-based parenting was the norm. We hear people say, oh, when, when I was growing up, I used to hear people's parents say a clip round the ear never done me any harm. And what they meant by a clip round the ear was like being beaten with a belt or something. And then people of my generation, not so much now, but before we used to say things like, oh, I got smacked. It didn't do me any harm. Meanwhile, we, we're all in therapy now. We're all paying for all the coaching. We're reading all the personal development and self-help books and we're ingesting the podcasts. So on reflection... When we are adults trying to make our own way in the world, trying to grow and do what we want to do, that shame-based parenting can really, really keep us stuck. Unconsciously, these things, you know, we knew they were unacceptable, but they were normalised. And because of the environment many of us grew up in, it was like, well, who am I to question this authority? So we end up in a situation where we learn to hold ourselves back because we have internalized, gosh, I'm saying internalize a lot today, but we have taken on, internalize sounds better, a message that says we are at the risk of being excluded from our social group if we don't conform to the norms. Stepping away from the norms and trying to be yourself 
can often bring up a whole load of shame because we were taught to be ashamed of ourselves. I've had this conversation so many times with people in business and I've had this conversation myself where your friends who knew you from way back when find it difficult to reconcile and accept the person you're growing into because it's different from who you were before. And what that means is it's not because anybody's bad. It's not because people don't want you to win or anything like that. We kind of... um, operate in patterns and when our pattern changes people recognize that change and the first thing we do with change is treat it with contempt we treat it with suspicion and sometimes unconsciously we might think oh gosh they're changing does that mean I have to change as well do they want me to change so we have lots of tangible examples of where being ourselves has been met with subtle or overt opposition And that knowledge that we've always been squashing ourselves down can feel really painful when we get to a point where we're like, I can't do this anymore. I need to be who I am, not just for my business, but mainly for myself, for the relationships I want to deepen, the um, intimacy I want to expand, the new relationships I want to have, the new levels I want to reach. And when we get to that point, and that squashing and squeezing is too painful, we've got three choices. There are probably more, but today I'm telling you, we've got three choices. One, to continue the pattern of emotional neglect and ignore the truth of how we feel, aka avoidance and self-abandonment, people-pleasing. Or two, we can know the choices we're making are wounding us over and over and over and over again and we can adapt to manage frustration resentment and repeated micro pain of avoiding and ignoring that we actually need to be making different choices or three we experience the temporary massive at times but temporary pain of change And the temporary pain can be so painful, we tell ourselves we can't manage that pain. As the other outcome of believing that it's unsafe for you to be you is the inability to hold complex feelings. Holding complex feelings is like lifting heavy weights. You need to practice and you don't start with the heaviest weight first. You work your way up. You need to be consistent. There needs to be lots of repetition. You need to challenge yourself. You need to really stretch yourself. And when we don't get that um, heavy lifting ability immediately, we tell ourselves we can't do it, not realizing that it's something that's developed over time, not realizing we can't do it because we haven't had the opportunity to do it. And this is also linked to envy. So a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was now, I was talking about envy on social media and this soup of self-sabotage, limiting beliefs based on maladaptive behaviours is also linked to envy. So envy is similar to jealousy, but jealousy is wanting what somebody else has, whereas envy is wanting the characteristics somebody else has. And usually we identify and want those characteristics because they're usually characteristics we have rejected in ourselves. So maybe those characteristics were... Uh, to do with being called the bossy boots 
when you were a child especially girls get this a bossy boots or a show-off or too needy or a crybaby so those messages were internalized as a child you unconsciously rejected those qualities within yourself not just because they were seen as bad or unfavorable but because they made you believe that by behaving in a manner that was bad or unfavorable it meant that you were bad or unfavorable and this yet again would put you at the risk of harm of being ostracized of not being welcomed not being played with um a whole a whole load of things i'm thinking about as soon as i said that i'm thinking about um a situation when i was a child we went to alton towers or chesington or somewhere like that and um, I was there with my aunt and my brother and my cousin who were younger than me. And there were some girls that I played with occasionally at a local play center. And um, I went over to them hoping that I would be able to go around Chesington or wherever it was with them. And um, they made it very clear they didn't want me around. And then later on, it transpired that, so long story short, I went to a very elite private school for the first couple of academic years. So um, I was, you know, given elocution lessons. So I sounded very different to the people I grew up around. And I wasn't accepted. I didn't belong because later on I found out they said, um, I speak like the queen and I think I'm too nice. Those things weren't true at all, but because I was seen to be different and because I was seen to be too much for them, I wasn't welcomed in that group. So I made myself small so I could fit in and had loads of mismatched friendships until later on I made friends with people that have been friends for life. Anyway, um, and also, um, I've always been a very curious person. I'm quite a natural leader. So if you're used to people or if you're not used to people like that, then you would be seen as a bossy boots. People might think you think you're too nice or think you're better than them and a whole load of other things. <sighs> I didn't think I was going to be here so long. Um, anyway, so... If you are somebody who has natural leadership qualities, but you were told you were a bossy boots or a show off in childhood, you would adapt to tone that down like I did and had all these mismatched friendships. And this adaptation serves a purpose as a child because those friendships kept me company for a little while in my life. But as an adult, it's maladaptive. Maladaptive means a minus adaption. It is a sub subtractive adaption it's no longer keeping you safe it's no longer buying you tolerance it's actually keeping you stuck and your beliefs for example in business where you may say um i have issues with visibility i hold myself back i don't take up space um people actually diagnose themselves as introverts and then we when we start working together they realize that although they may be introverted that's not that is not what is stopping them from showing up online for example um people say things like i know what to do but i don't do it or 
people don't want to own how powerful they are. They don't want to own their leadership qualities because they don't want to be seen as a bitch. Um, And because the idea of power is wrapped up in a story about unmet needs and the lack of care um, being given by the people who were in power in our childhood, power might be seen as something that's unreliable. It might be seen as something scary. So you won't want, you won't want, it will make it very difficult for you to accept yourself as powerful. So in your work, you'll have grand ideas, you've got a big mission, a desire to make a huge impact, but then you'll hide from what you want and settle for what you think you can get because you've learnt that playing small and convenient keeps you safe, which means you haven't developed the ability to tolerate vulnerability. And the truth is, when you want to grow, when you want to expand, when you want to do things differently, you do risk the judgment of others, you do risk the criticism of others. But when those things are bound up with childhood wounds that you haven't healed, that you haven't addressed, you don't even look at, you conflate it all and it gets snowballed into one thing and you decide it's not safe for you to be who you are when that's not the truth. It wasn't at a point in time, but now you can reparent yourself and show yourself that it's safe now. I work with a lot of powerful women who are terrified about the concept of power. We've had conversations where people have become tearful because at some point they were let down in a significant way by the people with ultimate power, their caregivers and and other people in authority. Let's not even start talking about school. So we end up in a situation where we're constantly provided with poor examples of oppressive power that's designed to serve the few at the expense of the many. And in a culture or system that wants you to be way smaller than what you are, feeling too much is an endemic. A common thread in all the women I work with is that they have been told or given the impression that they're too much. And given what I talked about at the top of this episode, this immediately activates childhood wounds and the feeling of being at risk. It connects with the unconscious lesson that being who they are, being who you are, being who I am, being who we are, puts us at the risk of being ostracized. So instead, we learn or we um, reignite the skill of dialing it back, turning ourselves down making ourselves smaller and end up people pleasing instead of having genuine relationships based on the truth of who we are. And you know, it's important to look at the way race and racism creates different types of coping strategies and protective mechanisms within people of color. And there are lots of similar experiences between people of color, but as a black woman, I'm gonna focus on my experience. And one of the ways I learned to adapt to racism in childhood is through the concept of working twice as hard for half the recognition. And as I say that, I can clearly see myself. It it might have been 1989. I know I was very new to secondary school and I can see myself in our 90s, 
80s, 90s, I'm sure it was, anyway, that bit doesn't matter. But I can see myself in the living room. I can see exactly, I can, I'm actually standing in my mind where I was, where my mum was telling me that I have to work twice as hard to be recognised as half as good as my white counterparts. I remember my mum breaking down why I had to work harder and what this would mean in terms of my success and me being tolerated, essentially being tolerated by white people, particularly white people who had the power to influence my progression. Now, don't get it twisted. My mum was an activist. We, we weren't allowed to buy anything cape. She was up at South Africa House marching for Nelson Mandela and all sorts of stuff. All, all kinds of meetings took place in... Um, our house. So she wasn't talking about hiding and um, all of that kind of stuff. But what she was talking about was success as a method of protection from some of the issues I would face. And to be honest, was already facing as a black person in Britain. What she was talking about was assimilation. Blending in, doing what I could to be um, seen as a clever black black person, a good black person, a polite black person, and all of that kind of stuff, learning how to code switch. So all of these things I was taught to do because they were what my parents and that generation believed to be necessary to get by in a society that is fundamentally racist. And all of that tells us or adds another layer to it not being safe to be who we are, to it not being safe for me to not be who I was who I am, because I'm still a black African woman. So, you know, I was taught I have to do way better to be seen basically as human and to pretend that large parts of my identity, not, not so much pretend they didn't exist because I remember any opportunity we had to do a, a project at school, if it was talking about a person dead or alive, I would always be encouraged to talk about a black person dead or alive. When we had culture days, I would go to a school wearing something made from like African wax cotton fabric. Um, my parents were on it, but still there was that playing the game of making sure I wasn't being so black that it was held against me. It was about holding back natural parts of my identity so that I wasn't seen or appearing to be threatening. And, you know, this is a common story amongst black people, brown people, especially black and brown people who um, whose families are middle class or were working class, working really hard to get up the ladder, aspiring to be middle class. In that um, with people with that mindset, parents saw education and having a profession as some kind of like magic cloak or some kind of force field that offered you a level of protection. When the truth is, in a system of white supremacy or a system that's underpinned, overarched by white supremacy, it means that no matter how hard we work, no matter how well we speak, no matter how many qualifications we get, no matter how much we assimilate, the colour of our skin, the texture of our hair, the shapes of our noses, the thickness of our, of our lips, of our hips, the way we move, um, it just means that we're judged through that lens. 
we're judged through the lens of racism no matter what we do. So all the efforts pretty much are futile because yes, you can work hard, you can, you can achieve success, but my goodness, um, you could be a very successful, suited and booted black man who's done very well for himself and get in your fancy car, drive down the road at night and be stopped umpteen times by the police. And that's a fact. So all of these different things, and then we layer the intersectionality of being a black, I'm I'm talking about being a black person, but being a person of colour, all of those things come together and creates like a soup of self-abandonment. And for a time, this may have served a, well, not may, it, it serves a purpose. For a time, it serves a purpose. But when you start a business and or get to midlife, and your whole body, mind, spirit, your whole consciousness is calling for you to stand up, be an advocate for yourself, be all that you are, you realize that the heavy weight of that, maladap- of that maladaptation is too heavy to continue to carry and you've got to put it down. All of these things erode your self-belief and make it really hard for you to believe in yourself. But in the words of Glennon Doyle, we can do hard things. Just because it's hard does not mean you cannot do it. Self-belief is a skill. What's a skill? Well, there are various definitions, but what I am referring to is a learned power of doing something competently, a developed aptitude or ability. Key word, learned developed. It's something you can learn and develop to a point of doing it competently. And when you're able to do something competently, confidence doesn't matter. Because when you are competent, you don't need to feel confident all the time because you know what time it is. You've got an evidence base. You know where you're coming from. You know you're not just pulling smoke out your ass. You know what you're coming with. So you can speak even if your voice shakes. A skill is learning how to do something competently. Self-belief is a skill. You can learn the skill of self-belief. And when the skill of believing in yourself is repeated, you learn how to do it competently. As I just said, when you're competent about something, confidence doesn't matter so much. Why? Because you have a foundational, basic level of trust. It takes practice, it takes commitment, but the first step is identifying the beliefs you need to unlearn. This means casting your mind back and having a look at the places you could have picked up or you needed to adapt And these things have now become maladaptive so you can do something about it. And this doesn't mean wading around in the past and hanging around there. It's like being a deep sea diver. You go down, you move the rubble out of the way, you get the treasure, you bring it up to the surface. You don't have to be chilling, getting yourself stuck, reliving the past over and over and over again to be able to heal it. Healing is present. 
Healing takes place in the present moment. You can't go back in time. I can't go back to Chesington Zoo in whatever year to heal that. But I can take care of myself now and all the me's that have ever existed are still within me so they will automatically receive that healing. Peter Levine, who is a wonderful somatic trauma therapist, he develops somatic experiencing and has done wonderful, wonderful world in, um, work in the world of trauma, has a quote that I love. And it says, the past doesn't matter when we learn how to be present. Every moment becomes new and creative. We have only to heal our present symptoms and proceed. A healing moment ripples forward and back, out and about. So we don't need to be remixing, recycling, playing over and over and over again. Just remember, deep sea diver, go down to that seabed, clear the rubbish out, out of the way, get those pearls, bring them back up to the surface, polish them so that you actually have something that is going to be nourishing and supportive. One of my favorite phrases is shit is fertilizer. Shit is fertilizer if you allow yourself to grow through it. If you don't, you're just going to lay in the shit stinking and nobody wants that. So what can you do about it? Oh, I'm going to tell you what you can do about it. On Friday, the 23rd of September, 2022, which is also Autumn Equinox, I'll be hosting a mini virtual retreat. So it's taking place on Zoom called Embody Your Future Now. I'll be teaching a masterclass that will help you to identify implicit beliefs that are keeping you stuck so that you can start to let go of self-doubt and call in, build on self-belief. It will be followed by a beautiful guided meditation and journaling session with some aligned planning so that you can create a plan that's going to help you embody your future now. Um, and then it will be followed by some gorgeous non-linear movement. And then we'll have a small conversation to process and then we'll go on our merry way. It will be from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. There is a link in the show notes, so do come along. Despite the heavy topic, it's going to be fun, interactive and restorative. Healing doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be painful. And serious matters don't have to be boring either. So there will be links in the show notes. And if you are in contact with me on social media, there's information there as well. I'd love to have you on board um, wherever I can. When I'm doing offerings like this, I offered tiered pricing to make it accessible for people who are not in the position to pay full price. Um, I call it uh, contributing to a thriving ecosystem. So uh, the full price is £55 and there are some places available at half price of £27.50 and there are some places available at £5.55. I recognise we're in a tough economic time and even then there are some, some of us who just don't have it like that and that is all well and good. I don't want that stopping you from being able to attend some of the things I offer. Some of the things I can't discount like that but where I can I do. So 
that's that on that. I hope this has been informative. If it's been helpful for you, please do share it with somebody that you think would benefit. If you share this on social media, please do tag me at Live360. Please do pop comments in and give me feedback. If you've liked this podcast and you enjoy my podcast in general, a five-star review would be most welcome because, you know, the algorithms love us being in there all the time. And um, when the algorithms see your activity, it's like, oh, okay, we're going to give you a boost. And it helps my message reach more people. And you know, I am really here to offer insights, wisdom, thoughts for your contemplation. Right. That's the end of this for now. Take good care of yourself. Until next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Conversations from the Heart podcast. I appreciate you sharing your precious time with my guest and I. If you've resonated with what you've heard, I'd be so grateful if you could rate, review and share my podcast with someone you think may benefit. If you're a social media user and have connected with what you've heard, I kindly ask you to share this episode and tag me at Live360. Like an increasing number of our digital experiences, the algorithms have a huge impact. Your feedback and shares will assist me in reaching a wider audience and I'd really love to have more people sharing this experience and maybe feeling seen, heard and held by the conversations that flow from the heart. The personal development space is full of mindset tools, hacks and tips and I think it's high time we have a place where we can just be as we are and perhaps learn something we can apply to how we live, love and work without there being an agenda other than allowing ourselves to be whole. The feedback I get following each episode is beautiful and tells me that more people could benefit from tuning in. I welcome keeping the conversation going, so please do share your comments, observations, insights on the podcast show notes, social media posts, or anywhere else you see fit. Thank you for tuning in. The podcast was produced by me, Tamu Thomas. Music produced by Sam Kay.